0: I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burn spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come. Join me at my welcome table. I am Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Nathan Drews, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Carrie Moody, and I'm sitting at the welcome table.
1: I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table.
0: Compass Point, 40.48 degrees north, 73.56 degrees west, Harlem, USA. Time traveling. I am a native New Yorker. I went to high school on the subway, but I was born and raised in Queens, and at times my bridge and tunnel origins give me away, such as when I refer to going into Manhattan as going into the city. But the city it was far removed from the suburban childhood that I spent in St. Albans, Queens. In the city, there was another energy, a bustle and hustle that straightened the spine and gave notice that this was indeed the very Big Apple. This was Harlem, USA. I vividly remember my first trip to Harlem. I'm not sure of the year, but my parents and I had driven in to visit some friend or attend a service at an uptown church. It certainly was in the days when Harlem was on no one's to visit list and when terms like urban blight and black ghetto were bandied about with wild abandon. Now, I've always been a lover of architecture and unfortunately all too ready to disregard the negative opinions of others. I did so in the back of that car that Sunday morning. I looked up and around, and rather than seeing the disarray of the streets and the dilapidated housing stock, I saw the majestic brownstones with their high stoops and broad, straight roads. I saw the bedraggled remnants of elegant apartment buildings and wondered who had lived in them at the point when they were truly grand. As my parents and I drove through Harlem on that day more than half a century ago, what I saw outside of the car window was the grandeur of Harlem past. I was attracted from the start by the mix of dash and danger, by the hip, the homey, and the historic. I was captivated. Now after that first Harlem trip over five and a half decades ago, you'd think when in the late 80s I decided to purchase a house and set down roots, I'd look at the brownstones that had so entranced me in my youth. Contrarian to my core, I didn't buy one uptown, but instead decamped to Brooklyn where I now live. But that's a tale too long to tell here. But suffice it to say that Harlem maintained and still has its hold on me. On Harlem streets, I see the ghosts of thousands of southern migrants past, and in its bars I look for the descendants of Langston Hughes' Jesse B. Simple and Zerita. I see my parents in their youth, all dressed up in formal clothes, riding the subway to dances at the Savoy and going to parties at 409 Edgecombe Avenue on Sugar Hill. I hear the echoes of Adam Clayton Powell's resonant oratory from the pulpit of Abyssinia Baptist Church and the dulcet tones of Dorothy Maynor singing with the choir at St. James Presbyterian. I hear the vibrant discussion of James Baldwin and Albert Murray and see the vivid colors of Romare Bearden's collages. Each street corner that I pass bears silent witness to Harlem's past and Harlem's glory. Now Harlem was not always black. In the federal days of this country and well into the 19th century, blacks in New York City lived downtown in the area now known as Greenwich Village. As the city grew, they moved north. Harlem, originally spelled Dutch style with two A's, Harlem, was a suburb for the Dutch and German bourgeoisie, but it had been overbuilt. Landlords at the beginning of the 20th century had difficulty finding tenants for their new buildings. But the newly arrived blacks moved in the neighborhood, slowly at first into one or two buildings east of Lenox Avenue, then gradually the line moved west. When the tipping point was reached, white folks were out of there, and Harlem was wide open to new black tenants. In Harlem, those newly arrived from the South, with their cardboard suitcases and their country clothes, had to survive on what African-American writer Ralph Ellison called shit, grit, and mother wit. They found their way, and soon established their bailiwicks. Harlem quickly divided itself between the sacred and profane, with the Sunday saints and their churches firmly on one side of the divide, and the Saturday night sinners with their bars and clubs equally firmly on the other. Harlem soon offered a vibrant network of African-American churches of myriad dominations. Births, weddings, funerals, and all of life stages were accompanied there by resounding hallelujahs and amens of fellow brethren and sisters. The Saturday Night Sinners also created their world, one where the juke joints and Saturday Night Stomps of the South were transformed into blues clubs, jazz dens, and rent parties of the North. It was a time of progress, but also a time of homesickness and uprootedness, when a trotter and a taste of homebrew could bring relief from the travails of the northern world that was not the promised nirvana. Both groups found sustenance and light company in the small eateries that were being formed in the newly nascent black neighborhood. Often run by women who sold plate dinners out of their rooming houses or apartments, these spots grew into small, local mom-and-pop restaurants known to those in the neighborhood for providing the fried chicken and stewed okra, the smothered pork chops, hog and collard greens, in short, the comfort food that the displaced black southerners craved. They thrived, and some of them prospered. Then there were the rent parties, where necessity created a unique format.
1: Gets full of corn and starts breaking them down. Just at the break of day, you can yell.
0: Not enough money to pay the rent? No problem. There were always friends who were musicians, or a Victrola of some sort with a cache of 78 records. The local church or funeral parlor could provide extra chairs, and folks were sure to turn up if you passed around one of the small printed cards that said things like, you don't get nothing for being an angel child, so you might as well get real busy and real wild. If you don't do the Charleston or do the pigeon wing, Come on up, you can learn to shake that thing. Some of them grew into clandestine night spots that lured downtown Uptown as Harlem became a vibrant community known for its own way with entertainment.
1: the other night. There was really quite a sight. Gather round, folks, while I give you all the lowdown. It's a mess, too. Tables were filled with gaudy frails chewing on their fingernails. They were waiting for the man from Harlem.
0: I love that was the Harlem of my parents, where clubs like Connie's Inn and Small's Paradise, the Nest Club, and theaters like the Lafayette, the old Lafayette, existed. It was a world where folks headed out to dances and parties armed with a handful of nickels for the subway and a flask. It was a time when theaters were grand palaces where you could hear Ella Fitzgerald on stage with the Chick Webb Orchestra and then watch Meryl Oberon and Lawrence Olivier in *Weathering Heights for the same fee. They have a new expression along old
1: Harlem Way that tells you when a party Ten times more than gay to say that things are jumping leaves not a single doubt that everything is in full swing when you hear someone shout. It is the George is jumping, it's really jumping. Come in, cats, and check your hats. I mean, this George is jumping. The piano's
0: thumping. Oh, while I never lived in Harlem, it always remained a constant in my life. I heard about it on multiple occasions as my parents relived their youth. When I left my parents' house and crossed the bridge into Manhattan, finally, my first apartment was in Greenwich Village. Then Harlem was only a short train ride away. I would take the A train at the drop of a 30 cent Y token and head uptown. My writing career began in Harlem and the first article that I ever wrote was about the National Black Theater and Barbara Ann Tears' Sun People of 125th Street. I spent several years as theater critic for the Amsterdam News and made weekly jaunts to climb the stairs to the newsroom off 125th Street at a time when my copy went in on yellow paper and ended with 30, over and out. No computers back then. If my parents' Harlem was one of rent parties and stomping at the Savoy... Mine was a hub of late 60s, early 70s black activism. I interviewed Minister Farrakhan at the restaurant near to the main Harlem Mosque and had my first taste of bean pie. I was lured by the bata drums at the Yoruba Temple and began to study Yoruba culture. I did research for my doctorate on the French speaking theater of Senegal and was thrilled to find that information that I couldn't find in the archives in Dakar, Senegal, was sitting right there in the stacks at the Schomburg Center on 135th Street before it moved to fancier quarters. Under the leadership of Howard Dodson, this branch of the New York Public Library has grown into one of the best spots in the world for the study of African culture and its diaspora. For books that I wanted to own, there was always the National Memorial Liberation Bookstore where tomes both familiar and arcane could be purchased and good conversation could always be had. Downtown in the village, we had our own black enclaves that included our jazz club boomers and the pink teacup and Princess Pamela's. But uptown, there were restaurants galore. Not necessarily white tablecloth spots, but places where a filling and delicious meal could be had on a grad student's budget. And my friends and I would sample many of them.
2: Hi, I'm Victoria Horsford, and I'm sitting at the welcome table.
0: Hi, Vicky, Welcome. I'm curious. I know that I didn't learn about Harlem until late, but you were brought up in Harlem. What was it like? Where did you go maybe for a Sunday dinner when you were growing up, if it was something special and you didn't eat at home?
2: No, that one is difficult. Uh, when I grew up in Harlem, we're talking base, uh, when I would, could hang out with friends and go to dinner. Harlem was inundated with restaurants. I mean, 125th Street had at least two restaurants uh, every block, you know, if you go across from Lenox to 7th to 8th, St. Nicholas restaurants all over the place so if we're talking about the 60s uh, there was Frank's restaurant which was creme de la creme They used to have a a PA system to announce to um, the regulars, who were usually businessmen and Harlem professionals, they could announce on the PA system if someone had called the restaurant inquiring after
0: you. Oh, my.
2: (laughs) And they served, well, you know, roasted meats, chicken, beef. Uh, My favorite, I still remember it, The, um, the creamed... Spinach.
0: Oh, yes.
2: I haven't had anything to rival that since.
0: Okay. Well, now, what about, I, I vaguely remember something like the Rendezvous. That was a bar, though.
2: The Rendezvous, well, some of the older ones were like Copeland's.
0: Copeland's, yes. On
2: 145th Street. At that time, too, we're talking, uh, aside from Frank's, which was supposed to be downtown, uptown, most of the restaurants served soul food. So you had um, you had places like Hall's Corner, which was on Broadway, in the high forties. You had La Famille.
0: Yes, I remember, La, remember La Famille. That one of course, flight up, upstairs, one uh, flight
2: off of one twenty fifth on Fifth Avenue, precisely. And um, there's a place that was on McComb's place that was owned by two Italian American brothers who just off one fifty Fifth Street. And they just closed last year.
0: Are all of the others closed as well?
2: Uh, La Familia is no longer. Carl's Corner is no longer. The Linux Lounge, you know, it's known largely because of uh, the jazz tradition and the bar. But Linux Lounge has always had a restaurant.
0: Oh, okay.
2: And to this day, their restaurant is open until 1 in the morning.
0: Okay, which brings us to Wells.
2: We had Wells, where you could have chicken and waffles, Uh, then you had Perks. M&G's, that was a a place we could just go and sit on the counter. Mm -hmm. But it was reviewed and referenced often in papers like the New York Times and the Daily News. I remember one of those two papers uh, referred to it as a greasy spoon, a good, good greasy spoon food, okay. and they were highly offended.
0: I can imagine.
2: Uh, but that that also is closed. That was owned by a South Carolinian man who, who I think had the best chicken, um, chicken and dumplings. Ah this side of the north, uh, the Mason-Dixon line. It was Sylvia's, too. Oh, well, Sylvia's yeah.
0: is the sole survivor, almost.
2: <laughs> Sylvia, you know, will be celebrating, uh, the family will be celebrating the 50th anniversary this August.
0: Which is wonderful. Wonderful. Now, did you ever get to the original Red Rooster?
2: Oh, absolutely. It yeah, used to be a big hangout spot for young professionals, old professionals. I have at least two friends who met the men who became their husbands at the original Red Rooster.
0: Well, Victoria, thank you so very much for taking us down memory lane to (laughs) some of Harlem's past. Oh, it's
2: my pleasure.
0: Downtown, though, couldn't and didn't keep up with my annual need for black-eyed peas, collard greens, and okra that were the necessities for the New Year's Day meal that I began to prepare for family and friends. It was back on the A-train for them, always with the fervent prayer that I hadn't waited too long and that they would be available. Now, here's the deal. I know that everybody is not a fan of the mucilaginous pod. However, I celebrate it to the point where there is an okra pod on my stationery and on my business card.
1: I got some more-
0: Long before southern organizations had glommed onto the hibiscus relative as their symbol, I knew that okra was my thing. My mother, who ate virtually everything put in front of her, never touched the stuff, but would cook it up for my father. I therefore never had to eat it, but developed a taste for it long before I knew of its potent connection to the African continent. Only later would I come to understand that okra is truly totemic for Africans in Diaspora. The pod originated on the African continent and made its way to our hemisphere in order to feed the enslaved. In Africa, and among those of African descent, it is prized for its prodigious thickening properties. Thin soup? Add a bit or two of okra. Voila! A thicker and more substantial soup. Some of those okra-thickened soups even take variations of the name that the pod has in several Bantu languages, where it is called Ochingombo, Gingombo, Chingombo. In New Orleans and other parts of the South, they're simply known as gumbos. There were few gumbos available in the Harlem of my youth, but stewed okra was available at long-gone places like La Famille and Copeland's and turns up on the menus at soul food survivor Sylvia's that this year celebrates its 50th anniversary. I still go to Sylvia's occasionally, close my eyes, and remember what it was like before tour buses when family matriarch Sylvia Woods was helming the kitchen, and it was mighty good food indeed. had the Savoy, I hooked up with friends from high school, and we reveled in the times, heading uptown for Chicken and Waffles Wells after the other spots had closed downtown, when Chicken and Waffles was just a late-night dish, not the subject for articles and research and doctoral dissertations. We hunkered down at the tables, chatting earnestly about the arts and our futures, and writing our own black arts manifestos. We poked about the restaurants. We listened to James Brown and Al Green at the Apollo, the former in his sweat days, when after a vigorous performance he'd be drenched and an assistant would come and drape him in a cape and lead him off, only to have him throw off the cape and return for another round. This trope from southern black churches got us every time. But we were also fans of Al Green in his pre-reverend days when he was throwing roses.
1: He kept everything in the barnyard, either setting or ready to lay.
0: Lots of times, we simply formed our bar association and hung out drinking. We mainly drank at Mikel's on the Upper West Side, but also stopped in at such Harlem standbys as the Old Red Rooster. The club was a hangout where many folks can still claim to have met husbands and wives in the pre-networking days when the sexual revolution was still new. Now, back in the day, bars were smoke-filled spots that were slightly louche, or at least to a young lady from Queens that I had been raised to be. Now, while today my preferred tipple is red wine, Pinot Noir or Good Bourgogne, s'il vous plaît, back then it was all about Jack and Ginger that I'd learned to drink, from my friend Sam Floyd. If the Tennessee Sippin' Whiskey wasn't available, I'd settle for bourbon and was proud to know the difference. While restaurants nowadays have bourbon bars with a wide range of choices from Buffalo Trace to Wolford Reserve to single-batch special brews, in those days, there was a lot less choice. There was Old Crow, which, according to friends, could make you shamed, That was allegedly why the crow's head was slightly turned to the side on the bottle. Jim Beam, or I.W. Harper, always pronounced I.W. Harper with a little southern twist. Later on, there would be Maker's Mark. It's still my fallback drink when I find myself in a bar where the red wine bottles are open and half covered in dust, and the beer is warm. But that's my Harlem from my youth, and that is past, as is that of my parents and the neighborhood is morphing yet again. Today's Harlem is one of revival, rebuilding, and growth. As dynamic as that of my parents or my own, but very different. Its diversity and developments are not for today, but for another show. Today, I'm just gonna kick back, continue with my nostalgia trip. I'm heading uptown to elbow past the tourists, 10 to 20 on the bar, and ask for another Jack and Ginger and succumb to my reverie while supping on fried chicken, collard greens, and stewed okra. <laughs>
1: Get on the A train Soon you will be on Sugar Hill in Hollow.
0: Until next time, remember... Keep
1: kill it good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone Keep my good and greasy when I'm gone Keep my good, good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone good.